Well, welcome to all of you. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Ephesians. We've been in a sermon series through the book of Ephesians, which someone pointed out to me recently is not at all how the first century church would have done it. They would have gotten together and read the whole thing out loud. Fine. (laughs) Yeah, they also would have been there all day. Food would have been provided and so on. Uh, And so one of the glories of the Word of God is that you can read Ephesians in one sitting. You can. It really won't take you that long. 15 minutes, maybe 20, 25 if you're a slow reader. Uh, But also there are treasures within that you can go verse by verse and start digging. Uh, And so kind of one of the glorious like uh, there's there's both a glorious kind of surface simplicity and a glorious kind of depth in the Word of God. Uh, as we continue to work our way through Ephesians, we're now in the second half, which uh, to speak broadly and generally is the application portion. You had three chapters constructing a, a beautiful edifice of theology, understanding who God is, who we are, what it means to be His adopted children, what it means to be a part of His body, the church, and now we're moving into what life in that body looks like. Uh, Last week, I talked to you uh, about, let's see, we looked at verse uh, 25 and 26, putting away falsehood, being angry and not sinning, talking about righteous and unrighteous anger, right? And how there is such a thing as righteous anger. It is distinct from unrighteous anger. What they have in common is that if you you sit on them for roughly more than 12 hours, uh, both will spoil, whether it's righteous or unrighteous, both will spoil. And so this morning, I think rather uncharacteristic of my preaching, we're going to be focusing on just one verse. And so that is verse 28, if you'll join me there on page 1161, if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew. Here's what we find. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is the word of the Lord. And so we say, thanks be to God. Well, I've already given you a sort of overview of where we are in Ephesians and what's going on. Paul is applying all the theology of the first three chapters. And so one of the applications applies to thievery and how and why it must stop. And I'm going to offer to you this morning, you might have noticed in your bulletin, the title of the sermon is Replacement Theology. That is not to be confused with what is often called replacement theology. It's really a bit of a joke and a play on words. Well, the focus I want uh, you to give this morning is to what this verse in particular reveals about sin and what the Lord would have us do with sin in our lives. And I want to show you at least three things from the text. The problem of sin, the replacement for sin, and the destruction of sin. Okay, So the, the problem of sin, the replacement for sin, and the destruction of sin. So let's start with the first six words of the verse. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. I wanted to start with those six words. It is a restatement, basically, of the Eighth Commandment, right? You shall not steal. A flat statement. Recall to your mind the Eighth Commandment. Why is Paul repeating it? Well, apparently he needs to. Like, I, I mean, I, I don't, not to put too fine a point on it, but if Paul says, stop stealing, I'm going to assume that in the Ephesian church there was some stealing going on, okay? And so, apparently it was an issue. 
That's interesting, isn't it? To what extent can a Christian be a thief, right? Well, a Christian can be a thief, and then he's told to stop, and then he does. While it is true that the Spirit works in us, true believers and re- I mean, real Christians still deal with the reality of besetting sin, with temptations old and new. And these can be rooted in their upbringing, in their genetics, in their family history, or in something that caught their eye seven seconds ago. We deal, sanctified, redeemed people, deal with the ongoing struggle of sin. And we need to be reminded afresh of what God has said about it because we often forget. Though we are all Christians and though we are Spirit-filled, yes, that does not mean that Christians are unassailable when it comes to temptation. We just prayed, Lord, keep us from temptation. Deliver us from evil. We forget God's words. That's why God is good to remind us, let the thief no longer steal. Are you saying, Pastor Brian, that a Christian can really struggle mightily? Not just struggle, but even fail with the temptation of being a thief. Yes, and plenty of other temptations too, of course. So then let's unpack that just a bit. Let's get at that. Why does someone steal? Right? Why is a thief a thief? Why does he find himself in that condition? Well, I'm going to take a run at it and say because of its indulgence in, it could be any number of things, envy, fear, selfishness. And such need to be reminded (laughs) to stop it. Right? Now we need to get this clear. People sin most fundamentally because they are sinners and they want to. Okay? This is true of thieves, adulterers, murderers, and ordinary, boring, uh, everyday whiners and complainers. It's even true of addicts. We need to get this absolutely clear in our minds. Because I'm going to talk a little bit about, about the concept of addiction this morning. Not a lot, but, but we'll at least touch on it. A lot of the talk surrounding uh, addiction today is based on the premise that people with an addiction have a disease and therefore they're not guilty of any sin. Because maybe they hate the addiction but find themselves unable to stop. So you begin to hear things like, well, uh, an addict is not a failure who needs to be fixed. It is a diseased person who needs to be cured. And that is what I like to call fake compassion. Okay? Okay? Out of a misguided sense of mercy, it removes responsibility and agency, which is its own kind of condemnation and curse to hopelessness. It's like a man is struggling to walk, so you cut his legs off so that you can carry him. (laughs) If you look back at our text, Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Let him work. Paul does not begin to sort out the reasons why the thief might be stealing. He calls him a thief, not a stealaholic, not a kleptomaniac. He says he's a thief and commands him to stop. Now, with all that said, the most recent research we have on addiction reveals a pretty solid connection between addictive patterns and isolation or loneliness and some other things too, uh, fear, insecurity, and we can add other things to that list. And we should take all of that seriously. Remember what we've been seeing in chapters 3 and 4. Sanctification and isolation are not friends. Growth in Christ 
is a community project and you need a church for this. But the person who feels trapped in a sin pattern or an addiction doesn't simply have a loneliness problem. He has a a drinking problem as well, or a drug problem, or a pornography problem. And fake compassion only wants to talk about the circumstances, like the loneliness. Now, if you have zero compassion, then all you want to do is talk about the sin, you see. Wisdom is mindful of both, and wisdom knows why it has to be mindful of both. The reason why is that, well, the reason why you have to be mindful of the sin element is that you cannot repent of loneliness. That's, that's the point. It's not that, uh, it, it is not compassionate to remove from the equation, so to speak, the glorious gift of repentance from the healing of a lonely and broken sinner. The point I'm trying to make clear up front is we have to call our sin, sin. We have to call out our sin as sin. We have to identify sin in ourselves as sin, as well as the sin in our homes, the sin in our churches. We have to to identify it for what it is. We have to refuse to excuse it, and we must insist that it stop. Let the thief no longer steal. The problem in our moment, though, or at least part of the problem, is that our culture believes there are, broadly speaking, no wicked people, only ugly circumstances. So when a target in Portland gets looted, that's not thievery, that's the cry of the oppressed. Now wait just a minute. It should be Christians who, upon hearing that talk, say, that's just silly. Now, could it be that there's a starving man who steals bread? Of course. But only fools find refuge in rare and marginal cases in order to validate common and broad practices. The problem of sin is that it takes root in our hearts. If you go to James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, it'll be up on the screen behind me. James says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He tempts no one. But each person is tempted when, look at this process, he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So we sin because we want to. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So then, stopping a sin pattern is not just a matter of stopping. It's not just a matter of let the thief no longer steal. It's a matter of uprooting something. Right? a twisted desire, a destructive habit, what have you. And so what I want you to see this morning is that sin doesn't only need to be stopped, it needs to be replaced. That's the reason for the title of the sermon. This is why it's called, I called it replacement theology. It's a, it's a bit of a joke. It is a reference to, I mean, replacement theology is, is a, a term that some people use regarding Reformed theology and the fact that there's only one people of God, not two. Uh, And the one people of God is those who confess the Lord Jesus Christ. But what I want to talk to you about this morning is that while our theology, I mean, while our theology of, say, the the place of Israel in the covenant is not replacement theology, but is rather fulfillment theology, it would be fair to say, however, that our theology for fighting sin is a kind of replacement theology. And so having, having talked about that then, giving you that overview, second point of the sermon is the replacement for sin. Look back at verse 28 of Ephesians 4. Let the thief no longer steal, and here's the replacement, but rather 
Let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. So God's way is not just stop, it's stop and replace. Paul gives us insight. Paul gives very wise counsel that should shape not only the way you and I counsel others, but the way we counsel and discipline ourselves. A key weapon in the fight against sin is not simply resistance, but is also replacement. The principle of replacement is that sin is conquered not just when it is made to cease, but when it is replaced with a good work. Sin is not just avoided, it has to be replaced with something virtuous. I actually, I forget the name of, I, I, think, I think the name of the book, I'm, uh, I read it last year. Uh, it's called Your Future Self Will Thank You. It's by a fellow who's a Christian, and he, he writes on uh, some insight both from the Bible and from uh, neuroscience about um, fighting sort of bad habits. And, and that was one of the things that the research that, that he did revealed, basically, that you, you never actually break a bad habit. There's only replacement of bad habits. Um, and, and then he, he actually paralleled that with this text, saying, you know, sort of it, it's been here all along. And so, uh, so, for example, anger that doesn't know when to quit should be replaced with limits and words of blessing. That's last week's sermon, and as it happens, next week's as well. You know what Paul says should replace drunkenness? <laughs> this is actually kind of weird. The Holy Spirit and singing. Now there's an unexpected curveball. Ephesians 5, 18-19. So we'll, we'll get to this text later when we get to Ephesians 5. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. There's the thou shalt not. But here's the replacement. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Ugly ways of talking to each other need to be replaced with not with silence, but with words of encouragement and building up. That's the next verse, verse 29. That's next Sunday's sermon. So this has implications for all kinds of things, right? It has implications for... Uh, Patterns, bad habits, addictive behaviors, uh, sin patterns. I think even for parenting, right? So, so far as you can, try not to simply let your nose be nose, but replace, but have have your no accompanied by a yes. And I think, I think what this also tells us is that if someone is fighting sin in their life, and all they've got is a strong no it probably won't be long before they fall back into the sin pattern. So, I mean, let's say, let's say a fellow is a drunkard and his ritual, every night from about 7 to about 10 at night, he treats himself to large amounts of beer and whiskey. And he ritualizes it, which is usually what happens. So it's, it's almost every night. It's about the same time every night about the same place, the same chair on his back patio, the same tunes on his phone play while he drinks, right? This is a, it's a ritualized behavior, very, very common with, uh, with, with patterns and even sin patterns. Now let's say he comes under conviction. He knows it needs to stop. He knows it's destroying him, his marriage, his kids, etc. So he resolves to give it up, right? Just to give it up. Just, that's the stop, right? What will most likely happen apart from an unexpected and frankly unpromised miracle of the Holy Spirit, is that he will return to the patio in a few days. Then to the chair. Then to the tunes. Then to the drink. 
It's a whole ritual that needs to be broken and replaced with something else, like a chair inside the house with the family, maybe leading family worship before the kids go to bed. Instead of tunes on the phone, they sing together. Instead of a six-pack, it's some sweet tea until you get things figured out. (laughs) So is that going to be a hard change? Yes. That's going to be really hard. In fact, the word here in verse 28, let him labor, that is not the ordinary word for work. It's the word for hard work. It's a more intense word. In some translations have it just as toil. Like that's why the the ESV translators didn't just translate it as work there. They did labor and, and some have toil, right? So this is hard work. In other words, Paul is saying, let the thief no longer steal. Let him put those thieving hands to hard work and let him work his heart out. Because Paul knows that the only long-term answer to dishonest thievery is honest work. Thieves are not men who are insufficiently pitied. They are men who are insufficiently burdened with purpose from the Lord. If God has created men, okay? So let's just, just, take, let's just think of, again, uh, uh, say, say men who need to repent of thieving, of thievery, of stealing. If God has created men to lead churches, homes, societies, etc., when men become apathetic, passive, slothful, lazy, they will still lead, but it will be an ugly and destructive leadership. This is why it's so important for Paul and for us that we see that what what Paul is dignifying here and insisting on is a a movement from taker to giver. Right Now that's a hard medicine for a society such as ours, which basically believes that everyone's a taker at their core. We even have a word for it. We, we call ourselves consumers. Right? We're, we're consumers. We're takers. Right here, Paul's point, at least part of it rather, is that you're, just, you're not made for just consumption. You're made for good and honest work with your own hands. This is why you hear me say almost every Sunday that giving is part of our worship, right? When we take up tithes and offerings, that's part of our worship because worshipers are not mere mindless consumers. They are workers. They are participants. They are givers. That doesn't mean they aren't blessed, quite the contrary. But it does mean they're not mere consumers. Now that is a radically... to. To go on a brief excursus for a moment. That is a very different understanding of worship than that which exists in a lot of places in modern evangelicalism. Modern evangelicalism sees the worshiper as mainly a consumer. Right? I come, I get myself stirred up, charged up, riled up, filled up, just like the drive through I come, I get what I need, I feel good, I carry on. That is not the main purpose of worship. That is the main purpose of like a concert, or a movie, or a spa treatment. And if you walk out of a concert, or a movie, or a spa treatment, and you just weren't really feeling it, then you do kind of have a sense that somebody failed you. And rightfully so. That's because you're a consumer. You're spending money on goods and services, and the consumer is always the judge of the value because the customer is always right. However, worship of the Almighty is not a religious good or service that we are creatively trying to market so that consumers will be satisfied with our product. (laughs) I heard a hallelujah out there. Thank you. 
Our worship is late orgia, to use a Greek term. Uh, it's where we get the word liturgy. It literally means the work of the people. Worship is our corporate offering that we make together with unified voices, with melodies and harmonies, with our glad and unified amens, with our glad and unified hallelujah, with our glad and unified, uh, this is the word of of the Lord, thanks be to God. This doesn't mean that worship doesn't bless us or is not a blessing to us. Far from it. In worship, we are indeed glad receivers of all of God's good gifts to us. But my point is that, look, there are times where corporate gathered worship is work. (laughs) And it's good work. Sometimes you will experience it like effortless, easy joy. And sometimes you will experience it as work. Sometimes you have to lift up your voice in praise in spite of your grief. That is hard work. Sometimes you have to remember what a bulwark is <laughs> or what an Ebenezer is. That's hard work. <laughs> but the great encouragement is that you never do it alone. This is work that we do together. And so while there may be Sundays that require you know, more from us when we're gathered together than others say, let us always be mindful that Christ is here in our midst, by His Spirit, giving, giving, giving us His good gifts. Giving us His words. Giving us His promises. Giving us gospel hope. Washing us in His water. Feeding us with bread and wine. Giving, giving, giving. And when we depart with His blessing ringing in our ears, let us never be guilty of saying, you know, I didn't really feel it, so I guess the Holy Spirit didn't show up. Let the thief no longer steal, Paul says, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is the third point, the destruction of sin. So let the thief no longer steal. That's the command. We then saw the replacement move. Rather rather than stealing, let him use those hands, those thieving hands to labor. We now see the purpose so that he can bless his neighbor. There are at least a couple of principles we can take from this. The first is that godly work is productive work. God calls us to be a people who take the resources he's given us and use those resources well. This is one of the major points of that parable with the servants and the talents, right? The good and faithful servants take what their master's given them and they're productive with it. Godly work is productive work. You should want your work to produce blessings. Blessings for your family, for your kids, for your neighbors, for your people, for your city, and so on. Your work is not just for you. It's meant to result in blessing to your neighbors. And that's the second principle. Productive work blesses my neighbor. This is news to us, I think. Sometimes we tend to think that the main purpose of our work is to give us as individuals a sense of purpose and satisfaction. But that is not the main purpose of work. The main purpose of work is obedience to God and the blessing of your neighbor. So the the picture here is that the thief (laughs) hears the Eighth Commandment. Let the thief no longer steal. Right. So he stops sinning. He puts his hands to good and honest work. And then rather than being a thief of resources, he becomes a producer of resources. 
You see, it's, it's not just that the activity of his hands has been changed by Jesus. It is that the orientation of his heart has been changed by Jesus. He has moved from seeing his neighbor primarily as one from whom he has to take to now seeing his neighbor primarily as one who receives from him. I know I often quote screw tape in my sermons, and here we are again. Screw tape says, uh, or excuse me, Wormwood says to screw tape. No, screw tape says to Wormwood. Right. Yeah, that's right. He says, The whole philosophy of hell rests on recognition of the axiom that one thing is not another thing, and especially that oneself is not another self. To be means to be in competition. In other words, screw tape says that all of hell would have us believe that other human beings are primarily competitors with each other rather than neighbors who you're called to love. Neighbors who you're called to share with. The goal of hell is to get you to see your neighbors primarily as threats to you and competition for attention and resources. It's really important. And I want you to see here kind of how the how the 8th, ninth, and 10th commandments all kind of are bound up together in this. So, so 8th commandment, you shall not steal. Right? 8th commandment, you shall not steal. Well, but what if I really need it though? I mean, I mean, I, so I look around, I see a lot of people who have more than I do. They're more comfortable than I am. They have more, I have less. They're haves and I'm a have-not. This is a doctrine of demons. It is also, if the statistics are to be believed, the primary way that people justify theft. Nobody will miss it. It's easily replaced. If I have less, they have more, they'll be fine. It is a paper-thin shield of cowards and fools. More than that, it violates the ninth commandment. So eighth to ninth. Right? You shall not bear false witness. To reduce people to their possessions and to cast yourself as the victim of the story so that you can excuse your sin, that is lying. And it violates the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. You're lying about what's really going on so that you can excuse your sin. We very often, with sin, confuse explanations with excuses, right? So if, uh, if, if a mom is, is tired and worn out at the end of the day, one of her kids is working her last nerve, and she explodes in anger, the temptation will be to say, well, I was tired and worn out as an excuse. But that's not an excuse, it's an explanation, Okay? What's being said in that moment, if, if we're imagining it to be an excuse, is since I have it tough, my sin isn't sinful. But that would be ninth commandment. That, that's a lie. <laughs> so the thief violates the eighth commandment. Then he lies to himself about his thieving and violates the ninth commandment. Not only that, but he's lying so that he can cover his, up his disobedience to the tenth commandment that you shall not covet. You shall not envy. You shall not long for that which belongs to your neighbor. It is your neighbor's and not yours, and that's the end of the matter. And envy and covetousness are the sins that today motivate entire political systems and justify all sorts of lying and theft. When we were, doing our, uh, we were in the middle of our Wednesday night series on work and on the goodness of work, I said Karl Marx's greatest lie was that if someone has a big piece of the pie, that means necessarily that someone else has a smaller piece. But in God's world, the pie grows. That's good news. Because God means for our resources, 
to bless us and to bless our neighbors. He calls us away from sin and to put our hands to good work rather than to evil work, rather than to sinful work. And for that work to be productive that we might share with others in need. And by this replacement, sin is destroyed. Now hear me carefully there. I'm not saying that by our good works, we destroy sin by our own power. I'm saying that God works by His words, words just like these words in verse 28, words empowered by His Holy Spirit to destroy sin. God is telling us here in verse 28, not how we destroy sin in our own power, but how He destroys sin in His power. When our energy is used to bless and serve our neighbors, rather than used up in indulging and fulfilling our own lusts, this is a strong shield against the tempter's power. And it puts a pattern of sin behind us as a thing that has not just been stopped, but also replaced with something glorious. Part of crushing your sin patterns (laughs) is using up the energy you need to sin and using it to bless instead. We are naturally good at finding creative ways to sin. We ought to pray for more creative ways to serve our neighbors with the fruit of good and honest work. And so, as I begin to wrap this up, I I think God takes great pleasure in surprises and ironies. Okay, So He creates a gardener and then tells him to be a conqueror. Right? Go and take dominion. He found a scaredy cat named Gideon hiding in a wine press and addresses him as mighty warrior. He takes a stuttering man named Moses and makes him a deliverer. He sent his son who grew up as a carpenter who then died with his hands nailed to wood. And furthermore, God delights to take thieves and turn them into saints who will work so well they can cover the needs of their neighbors. You see, we fail, we sin, we maybe even develop patterns of sin. God answers back with what we need. God means to break those patterns in our hearts and our hands. And in a sense, He means to weaponize our failure so that we have a way to bring light into darkness. If you'll pardon me, one more C.S. Lewis reference. In The Great Divorce, there's a moment when a fellow is at the gates of heaven and he has a red lizard on his shoulder. It's a pesky, besetting sin that he can't shake. That's the purpose of the red lizard. And the angel with the flaming sword shows up and asks him four words. Can I kill it? And they debate back and forth. The man is terrified. The lizard is terrified. Uh, The lizard starts talking and whispers to the man and says, he'll do it. And then what will you be without me? What will you be without this sin that you've nurtured for so long? You'll be nothing. You'll have no personality to speak of. All of of who you are is bound up in this. Eventually the man falls to his knees and surrenders. The angel touches the lizard and it screams and squeals and falls to the ground and begins to burn. And from the ashes rises a stallion. And the man mounts the stallion and rides through the gates of heaven. 
It's so good, right? (laughs) You see, his ongoing failure was now, by the grace of Jesus, his triumph of grace. His story of darkness was now proof of God's light. His shame was now his glory. This is what Jesus Christ means to do with us. This is what His blood has already purchased. This is what His resurrection has already delivered. That sin and death do not have the final word. They get burned up and recreated. Such that stories of failure become glorious songs of God's deliverance. Today's dragons will supply the lyrics of tomorrow's glad songs of victory. And all your present affliction, trouble, and even besetting sin is the little instrumental prelude to God showing off. So take courage then. There is yet a story to be written. And the slings and arrows of our enemy will soon enough be taken from Him and given to us, clean and ready for our use against all the hordes of hell. In the name of Jesus, Amen. And so, Father, we ask that You would help us to see this clearly, where there is sin in our life. Help us to to know it, to confess it, and to seek to replace it with that which would glorify You. I pray, Lord, for those who this morning feel themselves to be stuck. I pray that You'd give them wisdom and illuminated insight on what this replacement looks like. And if they are still asking questions, then send them to their elders to get good answers on on how to move forward according to the grace that You've given us, according to the promises that You've given us. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your love. Thank You for the hope that You've given to sinners such as us. Amen.